glad to see you today and glad to welcome those worshiping with us online. Glad you could work, join with us as well. Now, we've been talking about the seven last words of Christ from the cross. We're in this series during the Lenten season, and today we're going to be looking at the word substitution. Have you ever been to the health food store and read the labels? Anybody ever do that? You keep up with that kind of thing? If you go in and read the labels, they'll say it has a substitute in it. For example, it has a sugar substitute. What does that mean? That means it's not going to taste like sugar. That's what it means, exactly. It's a chocolate substitute. That's an oxymoron right there. It's not going to taste like real chocolate, is it? There's no such thing as a garden burger, really. I mean, people try to sell you on that, but it's not going to taste like a burger, is it? That's like saying, I'm from the IRS and I'm here to help you, right? Wouldn't you say? It's a contradiction in terms. And when I say substitute, what do you think of? Teacher, substitute teacher. Most people think of that. And sometimes when you get a substitute, they're not as good as the real teacher, right? But sometimes they're even better. Have you ever noticed that? Just depends on who your teacher is and who your substitute is. I heard about a dad who had his young son at the doctor, and the young son had never had his blood drawn, but he was going to have to have his blood drawn for tests. And so the little boy was scared to death, and he kept saying, Dad, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. And so the father said, really, it'll be okay. It's all right. But, but he couldn't get adjusted to the idea. Finally, the nurse said, okay, we've got this numbing spray. We're going to spray this on your arm. Then when we put the needle in, you won't even feel it. But the little boy still, he was nervous. He said, I can't do it. So the dad said, ma'am, listen, I know this is kind of out of bounds, but do you think you could just draw my blood first to let him see that it's okay, that he'll be all right? And don't use the numbing spray. And so she said, well, I don't do this for everybody, but for you, yes, I will. Just keep it between us. And so the dad put the little boy up in his lap, and he said, now watch daddy. And he rolled up his sleeve, and he stuck out his arm, and the nurse began to draw blood. And you could see the little boy, and a smile came over his face. And he said, you know, if my dad can do that without the numbing spray, and I'm going to get the numbing spray, maybe I can do that too. And so he stuck out his arm, and he had the courage to do it. Have you ever thought about looking at the place where they drew blood from Jesus, from the cross? And there you'll find the substitute for all of our sins. Today we're going to talk about substitutes. Now we've been in this series, The Seven Last Words of Jesus, and these are the words that he spoke from the cross. He was on the cross for six hours, from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. And from the cross, he made seven statements. Now, here's what I want you to remember. The first three statements that he made were in the first three hours that he was on the cross, but they were made to other people. Later in this series, we're going to talk about the other things he said and who he said them to as well. Now, do you remember... Uh, what we talked about the first week, if you've been here for the series, then maybe you remember these things. I just pray to Jehovah you do. The first week, does anybody remember what we talked about the first week? Well, let's just call my mom and get her to tell us over the phone. Okay, this, was, this sermon is one you need to go back and listen to if you haven't heard it. We talked about forgiveness. God bless you. One person knew that. We talked about forgiveness. That's exactly right. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The second week, we talked about 
assurance. It's coming back to you now. I feel better. Where Jesus said to the thief on the cross, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. He had said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then the third week, the word we used last week was love. I want to thank both of you who remembered that. Where Jesus talks about his mother Mary and about his good friend John. You remember that? He said, this is your new son, John. This is your new mom, Mary. Y'all take care of each other because I'm not going to be here. And so today we're going to talk about the fourth word. You might want to jot those down because I'm going to ask you this again next week. You know that, don't you? So it's substitution, right? Now, here's one of the amazing things. During the, the brightest hours of the day are from like noon until three, right? You, how many of you go to the beach? Okay, why do you live in Florida if you don't go to the beach? Some of you go to the beach. I, we had friends here this past week, and we took them uh, out to Shell Island on Friday, and it was a beautiful day on Friday, wasn't it? It was a little cool going out there, but once they got there, they loved it. And I didn't know this, but it's the first time I've been there since the hurricane. From standing on the boat, I could see across the island, and I could see the gulf in one particular place. Did you know that it had leveled off that much since the hurricane? Anybody know that? Can any of you hear me? Anyone here? I'm just checking to see. I'm talking to you like you're listening to me. I don't know what I was thinking. Okay, so that's what I thought. That's exactly how I feel right there, okay? But during those hours, God brought a covering of darkness, and everybody paid attention to it. It was abnormal. During those hours, those last three hours on the cross, you know, even the guard said, this guy's got to be the son of God because it got so dark during that time when he was on the cross. And in Matthew it says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came all over the land. It came all over the land. Now the word darkness here is a word skotos in Greek. And it's just talking about an obscurity. It's an unusual thing that this happened there. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the word substitution here is a shocking word because he's talking about being deserted. Forsaken would be deserted or rejected or abandoned. Nothing hurts like being abandoned, right? In the last hours of Jesus' life, in the 24 hours, he was abandoned by a lot of people. First, by Judas. And then he was abandoned by the disciples except for John. And then finally, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what's going on here? Well, he's the substitute for our sins. Nobody could pay for our sins except the perfect Lamb of God, someone who was sinless. And so he died to pay for our sins. And the Bible says, he, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice, it says, for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's substituting himself. The atoning sacrifice. What is an atonement? Atonement means paying for damages done. And so, you know, like if you have a wreck, you have to pay for the other person's car sometime. You know, I had an interesting thing happen at 8.30. This guy, uh, this couple, they were in church. They come every week. And he said, um, do you know so-and-so? And I said, yeah, I do. And I said, how do you know them? And he said, well, we ran into them at Pier Park. Literally. They, they ran into each other, 
and they exchanged insurance and they got information. And then how does this happen? If, you're, if you have an accident with somebody, how does my name come up in this? I am not an attorney. I don't make commercials. But, but the guy said, he was from up in Opelika, he said, by the way, where do you go to church? And he said, Woodlawn. You know Joe Lay? He said, yeah, yeah, I know Joe. Yeah, he's the pastor at our church. He said, well, he used to be the pastor at my church in Opelika. You're kidding. No, no. And then we prayed, and he left, and he came to you. That's what happened. That was supposed to be funny. Not so much. <laughs> Our prayers were answered. Not so much, huh? Okay, well, we'll just leave that out at 11. We won't mention that. <laughs> Something good to know for the next... Because in case you're listening to anything I say today, I'm just wondering about that. So an atonement, you know, you have to pay for somebody else's stuff. Well, in 2 Corinthians, it said, God made him who had no sin... To, to, for, to be sin for us so that God in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So what do we learn from these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the first thing is that God is holy. That's number one. First thing on your outline, Revelation says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, in Greek and Roman mythology, all the gods had flaws. They weren't perfect. But the one true God is holy. That means he is perfect. And because God is holy, he hates evil. The Bible says in Habakkuk, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And that's why there's no sin in heaven. On the cross, when Jesus took on the sins of the world... God, at that moment, could not look on because he's holy. He can't take part in sin. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want you to notice something interesting about this. Everywhere else in the Bible, when God is talking to the Father, he calls him Father. This is the only time he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's because the relationship has been broken. God looks away. He's separated because he's holy. I can't be a part of that, he's saying. And so he cries out, where are you? Why have you left me? And that relationship with God can be severed or broken with you and me too. We're going to talk about that. Second, sin is ugly. It is ugly. Everything in society says that it's attractive and popular and appealing, but it's really not. And that's Satan's strategy to get us to lower our defenses so that he can tempt us. But the cross shows three damaging effects from sin. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We learn that sin alienates. It alienates us. It separates us from God. You know, my God, where have you gone? Where are you? Sin always breaks that relationship between God and us. In Isaiah it says, But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Have you ever prayed and felt like your prayers didn't go past the ceiling? You know, you just felt like you weren't connecting? It's because there's some unresolved sin there. When there's a conflict in marriage, intimacy is interrupted. Now, I've been married to my wife, Laura, for 38 years. It'll be 39 years in December. And my wife doesn't have to tell me when she's mad. I've learned to pick up on it, okay? 
I just know. I know from her body language, anytime there's a conflict, there's a sense of distance between us, okay? And, and we're just not as close as we once were. In fact, this morning, when I was getting ready to come to church, my wife woke up from a dream, and she said, let me tell you about my dream. Most of her dreams, she's a victim. Somebody is coming after her. She is in peril. And where am I? I'm not there. I'm gone. I'm somewhere else where I'm not supposed to be. So she was in a restaurant, and I went to the restroom. This guy started choking her in the restaurant, okay? And he's all upset because she's sitting there, and, and he's with his date, and he's upset about it. And where am I? I'm in the bathroom, right? So finally, she gets the, the girl with him, gets him to stop choking her. And so there I am. I come back. And this is the other thing I do. Whenever she's, had, she's in peril, I always play that down. I always play that down. It's not that big a deal. It's okay. So I get back. She tells me about the guy who's choking her. And what do I do? He wasn't really choking you, okay? I wasn't even there. I don't know what's going on. But no, it's okay. He didn't mean to choke you. He just got a little excited, okay? He did have his hands around your throat. He was squeezing that throat. But, but you know, it's okay. Let's just let that go, okay? And so then another time she gets in danger in this dream. This is, I'm trying to come to church. She's telling me about her dreams. I've gotten in trouble. I haven't even left the house yet. I'm already in trouble. And now she says, okay, I'm in peril. This guy comes along. And where are you? You're taking a shower. Yeah. A guy told me after the 830 service, he said, I've got some advice for you. You and your wife can get along a whole lot better if you just won't spend so much time in the bathroom. So I'm playing that down. Her third little episode, she had three. She had three little vignettes. The third one involved Michael Jackson, and she was on a bus, and they were going somewhere, and by this time she knows she's dreaming because it's really out there, and somebody decides they're going to fix her hair, and she says, go ahead, have at it, because she knows she's dreaming now, and then she wakes up, and, and then I get in trouble, okay? <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I got from that, all right? Well, that's what happens with people when we, when we sin, we're alienated from God. Now, another thing that sin does is it distresses us. What does that mean? Sin puts enormous stress on our lives. We were not made to live in conflict with our Creator. So when we break God's laws, then there's a lot of emotional stress in our lives. Like what? I'm going to give you some. You need to write these down, okay? Jot them down. I'll try to go through slow enough. Get the person next to you. Maybe you could do every other one. Then you can compare notes later. Don't do that now because I'm talking to you. But maybe we can get them all, okay? Worry. Worry is caused by sin. You say, what do you mean? It means you're not trusting God. Maybe even in your dreams that could be the case. I'm just saying, okay? Okay. Okay. Then fear, <laughs> I'm missing the whole show over here. Then fear <laughs> and doubt and bitterness and guilt and resentment and shame and loneliness and insecurity and low self-esteem. These are all problems, but they're not really problems. They are symptoms of the real problem, and that is unrecognized 
or unresolved conflict with God. You and I were not made to live in conflict with God. The Bible says in the Psalms, it says, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. So if you're walking around feeling guilty all the time, God didn't design you to feel that way. He designed you to feel forgiven. And so there's something you can do about that. You can turn to him and ask forgiveness. The third thing we see is that sin condemns. Sin condemns us. When you violate God's law, there's a penalty. And you live not only with God's condemnation, but with your own self-condemnation. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, nobody had to tell them they sinned. They knew it, right? And so they hid from God. You and I, we we beat ourselves up with self-condemnation all the time instead of just dealing with that and addressing it with God. The Bible says God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. You see, God is righteous. What does that mean? That God is always right. He's always right. Laura told me when we first got married that I always thought I was right about everything. You know, I would say, well, I was right and you were wrong. And and so she's tutored me over the years to learn about that and to see what that's really all about. Because she would say to me, just say it on that one occasion, I was right and you were wrong. And so I would say, I was right and you were wrong because that's what she told me to say, right? That's not what I meant, she said. But God is a righteous judge. And so when God judges us, he doesn't misjudge. Now, I misjudge people all the time. You can just tell, I do that. I'm human, right? But don't get too uppity about it because you do too. You look at people all the time and you misjudge them. But God is a righteous judge. That means that everything he chooses to look at, he sees it in a righteous way. He knows it. And if he says it's righteous, he's true. So God is always just and fair. He's a God of love. He's a God of justice. And one day God will even the score. Some of us like to even the score ourselves, but God will take care of that, won't he? If God wasn't a God of justice, there wouldn't be any punishment, would there? Is there anything that God hates? Yes, he hates evil. And righteous anger is caring about the needs of other people. It's motivated by love for other people. The Bible says in Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So I should be punished for my sins, but Jesus paid for my sins, and that's good news. Now, your problem and my problem is that that we're at war with God. Look at the person next to you. And, and use an authoritarian kind of face and say, you are at war with God. Go ahead and tell them that right now. Okay. Now, now here's what you said. When that person next to you said that, here's what you said. You said, I am not at war with God. Nay, nay. You don't know me. You don't know what I'm talking about. But you really are, and here's why. When you decide to do what you want to do over what God wants you to do, guess what? You're at war with God. Now you want to rethink that? Hmm? Yeah, because we do that, don't we? And the cross shows the ugliness of sin. God is holy and sin is ugly. Okay, the third thing. Salvation is costly. It's free, but it's not cheap. Somebody had to pay for it, and that was Jesus Christ. In Romans, it says, For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. 
Now, I want to tell you a story about two guys in New York City. There were two guys that went through law school together, and they finished together, but then their lives took completely different paths. It really happened. One guy went on to become a federal judge, very successful, very well respected. But the other guy who went through law school, he became addicted to cocaine. And so he spent all of his money on cocaine, and he had to get involved in criminal, criminal activity so that he could pay for that habit. Now, years later, the drug addict got caught on fraud charges, and they brought him into court in New York City, and people knew about their past. And he came to that judge that he went through law school with, and everybody came to see what would happen that day. Would his friend let him off, or would he give him the penalty like he would anybody else? And what surprised everybody were the two things that the judge did. First, he handed down the largest fine you could possibly give for what his friend had done. But then the judge got up and he walked around. He came down off the bench and he took off his robe and he paid the penalty himself for his friend. Now, you, let me tell you, that got everybody's attention. They saw that, and you don't see that happen often in life, do you? What had he done? He had issued justice and mercy all at the same time. And that's what Jesus Christ does for you and me. That's exactly what he did when he died on the cross. He gave us justice, and he gave us mercy. The Bible says in Galatians, Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. Can, can you read that and see it come alive? When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. You know what that's called? That's blessed assurance. Nobody's going to love you more than God. So how do I respond to that? Real quick, four quick things. Number one, I turn from my sin and I trust Jesus to save me. The Bible says in Romans, we are made right with God. By placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. So we can be forgiven and free from self-condemnation because Jesus has died for us. Hebrews says if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have a relationship with God because of our Lord. I'm sorry. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. And it means if we reject Jesus Christ, there's no other way to be saved. And second, we live in a state of gratitude. How can you not love somebody who loves you this much? Romans says, so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. So Jesus deserves our eternal appreciation. Okay, the next thing. Third, remember what my sin cost Jesus, it put him on the cross. First Peter says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors, right? And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, it says, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. So remember what it cost Jesus. And the last thing, tell others the good news. This is the best news. If somebody died for you and it made all the difference for your eternity, wouldn't you want to know about it? And there are people who don't know, and they're just waiting on you and me to tell them. 
The last scripture I want to mention is Acts 20. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Now I just want to tell you a quick story and we're going to close, okay? Years ago I was teaching a class and I was having people read a book before they would come to class. And there were about seven or eight books we read that year. And so they signed up for it in advance. And I said, now here's what I want you to do. Before you come to class, I want you to read your book. And then I'm going to outline the book for you from my notes from, from what I take from the book. And then I'm going to lecture on that outline for one hour, and you come to that. So they're going to get it three ways, right? They're going to read the book. They're going to get the outline. Then I'm going to talk to them. And they started saying to me, give, give me the outline earlier after the first year. They wanted to get it sooner, so I did that. Now, about the sixth book... This woman came up to me after class, and she said, you know, all this time we've been reading these books, and I've been thinking to myself, why does Joe want us to read these books? We don't need to read these books. He needs to read these books. They're not for us. And she said, tonight, while I was sitting here, the light bulb came on, and I realized I need to read these books because I have a responsibility to help fulfill the Great Commission. Look at the person next to you and say, you have a responsibility to help fulfill the Great Commission. Go ahead and tell them that right now. Because they like to be told what to do, right? <laughs> and you do. And so she, then she said this. Then she said, now I have to go back and read these books again. Because the whole time I was reading them, I was thinking about you reading them. Now I've got to think about me reading them. It makes all the difference in the world. So I thought to myself, if it's that difficult to get people who are going to church all the time to really understand their responsibility with a great commission, we've got to be really intentional about that. So, now really wake up at this point. Don't come to Easter by yourself. I like that. <laughs> don't come to Easter by yourself. Look at the person next to you and say, don't come to Easter by yourself. Okay, tell them that. That's right. Now, look, I'm not talking about, well, I won't. I'll bring my wife or my husband. No, no. That's not what I'm talking about. I want you to go. I want you to pray about this. I want you to think about this, and I want you to write down a name of somebody that you need to bring to church on Easter Sunday with you. I want you to pray about it, and then I want you to invite them to come to church on that Easter Sunday, and you might even offer to give them a ride. You might even take them to breakfast that day and get a lot of extra credit, and then bring them to church, because listen, people are more receptive to an invitation to church on Easter and Christmas than any other time of the year, and they might come, and it might make all the difference for them. You never know what's going to happen. You just do your part and trust God with the rest. You bring them, and God brings the results. And so we just trust him with that, okay? Thank you so much for that underwhelming response. So I want to challenge you to bring someone. And then when you bring them, I want you to bring them up to me and show me proof <laughs> that you brought someone. I made this person. I kidnapped them at gunpoint. I put them in a headlock. I brought them to church. They were just passing through. They really want to leave town. But they're here today because you said to bring them. And so I want to get my extra credit in, okay? So try to do that, please. Thank you both. All right, let's pray. Father, 
I just pray that we might take this to heart, that we might really invite somebody to come to church on Easter. They, they might come and they might be far from you, and who knows what you will do with that opportunity. It can change their eternity. Lord, it's so easy to do. We don't even have to get outside of our comfort zone to do this. Anybody can do this, and everybody's called to do it because we're all called to be a part of the Great Commission. And so I pray that we would do that, Lord. I pray that we would be faithful and obedient, and we would trust you with the results. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You have a connection card in your bulletin.